Generative artificial intelligence, it's the topic of lots of talk in the federal sector, but unlike previous excitement over cloud and zero trust, generative AI is striking apprehension in federal officials. In his weekly Reporter's Notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why agencies from EPA to GSA to HHS are putting the brakes on widespread use of tools such as ChatGPT and OpenAI. Jason joins me now in studio. Now, a brief explanation of what these programs are. We hear about it all the time, chat GPT, generative AI, people get so excited about it. But I think what gets lost sometimes is what is it? And I looked this up, Tom McKinsey defines it as generative AI is algorithms such as chat GPT that can be used to create new content, including audio, code, images, text, simulations, and videos. Generally speaking, it falls under the broad category of machine learning. And specifically, McKinsey says something like chat GPT is a free chat bot that can generate an answer to almost any question it's asked. The organization called OpenAI developed it, released it for testing last November, and over a million people signed up for it in the first five days. And 999,999 got the wrong answer. Probably. And like any new technology, Tom, industry is quick to jump on the bandwagon and how agencies could be using it. And I think agencies are listening because of what the power it can do from grants to contracts to policies to writing analysis. Tom, you and I know we can't go to any conference, listen to any webinar, hear any federal federal executive sure. speak without generative AI, chat GPT coming up. And the buzz can be deafening at times. Right. In fact, this is Jason's bot actually doing the talking here. He's not really here. Just kidding. Tom, Why... you are doing a great job. <laughs> right. Why all the apprehension, though, about it if it does all these wondrous things? I think there's several reasons. I think starting off is the reason they just don't know what they don't know. And there is so much buzz around it. In fact, Tom, I've been, we've been to several conferences recently, including the one from GuyTech, where this was the buzz across all of GuyTech. And Katie Barnes, the deputy chief science data officer for NASA's science mission director, she spoke there and says there's a lot of things that agencies just don't know about chat GPT and generative AI. To try to develop a strategy that's going to help you long term while really not understanding what's going on right now or, or the speed at which that goes. I think keeping up with that is, is the real challenge for us. Again, Katie Baines from NASA. It's more than just, well, we don't know what we don't know and, and, and how it can be used. I think there's a lot of concern about what can come from this generative AI. Is the document, is the information correct? What doc, What is being put in there and what can be put in there? And this has led to several new policies coming out. The Environmental Protection Agency came out in early May with a policy, and basically it was a very simple email that said, don't use it, anything in the generative AI world, and we will come out with policy later to really explain how to use it. And just recently, Tom, I got a hold of a new policy from the General Services Administration. They call this an instructional letter. This was uh, the, the kind of basics were posted online but I got a hold of the actual three-page letter, and this came from David Shive, the CIO at GSA, and he goes into a lot more detail about the concerns about generative AI and something called LLMs, large language models. You'll see this. And basically what this interim policy says is it's controlled access on GSA network and government-furnished devices, GFEs. Now, at the same time, he says, listen – you shouldn't use it to put any information in it that's sensitive. You shouldn't put any pre-decisional, no email, no personal data in it. Keep it. Be smart about it. If you're going to, and don't develop code with it either, except for internal use only. And if you do use code, make sure it's checked 
against it. So I think he's putting a lot of parameters around it because there's a lot of concern about what does it mean and how does it work. Yeah, it's basically a black box is the problem. And when everyone is talking about accountable, transparent, supportable, open AI, I know it's titled open AI, but the fact is it's a black box. And I think that's what worries the government. Is this widespread or a lot of other agencies sort of issuing these directives? We've only heard of a handful so far. EPA and GSA were very much, let's let's not use it or use it very sparingly. On the other hand, the Department Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Families, the acting CIO and chief technology officer, Kevin Duvall, posted a policy on LinkedIn and said, we're going to take more of a balanced approach. Again, very similar do's and don'ts, six considerations about using chatbots and generative AI, simple things like don't share PII or personal health data, make sure your workforce is educated, make sure you don't just rely on these tools for decision-making purposes, make sure you double check, triple check what you're using for. But I think he really he really sees the potential there and wants agencies or his agency specifically to be smart about how they're using it. At the same time, Tom, we also know that the White House's Office of Science and Technology Policy issued a request for information May 23rd asking for public input about how agencies could use or benefit from generative AI tools. That due date is July 7th for feedback. And of course, the Homeland Security Department also created a new AI task force to look at these and other issues around AI. So there's a lot going on. What's going to happen is I think the Office of Management Budget eventually will have to come up with some sort of policy. And do we know of any impact at the program level? Are agencies applying it in some way and that might be beneficial and also something to worry about? They're starting to see that now. And I think it's it's coming from two different perspectives. I think in the research and development world, there's opportunities to use it and take advantage of it. But more specifically, I think it's happening in the private sector that's being now applied to the to the government side. Andrea Brandon is the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Budget, Finance, Grants, and Acquisition for the Interior Department. She spoke at the recent Emerging Technology and Innovation Conference at ACT-IAC and says the technology is giving underserved communities and other potential people more access to federal opportunities. Now we're hearing from them that they can actually use it to write the grant applications. It pulls information from successful grant applications that are out there in the open space, and it's helping them to actually maybe write successful grant applications where in 20 years they haven't been able to really write because it's about how you write the application against the criteria in the notice of funding opportunity announcement and and other nuances. The challenge, of course, Tom, is as Brandon says, there is no policy for contractors or grant applicants. And so that then brings a new set of challenges for Interior or really any other agency for that matter. The organizations that are using ChatGPT currently are finding that it's actually cheaper to use ChatGPT than to hire a grant writer. Some organizations never had the funds to write a grant to hire a grant writer. So, as we discuss whether we're going to still allow ChatGPT in the future or what have you, we discuss policy. We're we're all just discussing it. We'll we'll take that into consideration. We never told uh, applicants that they couldn't use grant writers. So I don't know. Maybe we won't tell them they can't use ChatGPT. Maybe they'll be able to still use it. I don't know. But currently, it's leveling the playing field. So it's great that there's all this ability to send in grant applications. But now what's Interior going to do? And Andrea Brandon from Interior says they used to get, let's say, 400 grant applications. Now they could get over 1,000. That puts a strain on resources and people and timeliness. So these are all the kind of the unintentional or, or unknown consequences of chat GPT, generative AI, which is why I think a lot of agencies are saying, we see the potential, we're excited, but whoa, let's slow down. Well, the issue here is I think it could generate fake applications from fake organizations that really sound authoritative. And so I think the deep fake idea is hitting this generative idea, and that's what got 
people worried. How does it work? What's behind it? You mentioned it earlier being a black box. So I think there's so many questions that are yet unanswered. So instead of jumping into the water, they want to put one toe in and go very slowly, which is why you're seeing these new policies. And there's an alligator in that water. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. Again, this is ChatGPT speaking. All right. Check out his reporter's notebook typed by hand at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, 
influenced your leadership position now yeah. as president of Morgan State. It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness 
toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.